Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off forgotten women writers. I'm Kim Askew. And I'm Amy Helms. Today's lost lady, Deborah Vogel, was a Polish Jewish modernist writer whose poetry and literary montages, as she called them, pushed the boundaries of what literature could be. She was attempting to do with literature what the Cubists and Surrealists were doing with painting and photography. She ran in avant-garde artistic and literary circles and earned the nickname The Wandering Star of Polish and Yiddish Literature. Reading Vogel's work really challenged me, Kim, and I will admit I found myself thinking, I might not be smart enough for this episode, honestly. This is way too out there. But the more I read about Vogel's life and what she was attempting to do with her experimental writing, the more intrigued I became, even if I didn't always understand it. That's okay, Amy. I think the whole point is she wanted to challenge people. She understood that not everyone would necessarily get it, but she still never strayed from her literary vision. She once wrote half-kiddingly about her failure to gain readers. One beautiful day, whether a winter day or a blue summer day, we will discover ourselves, even if nobody from the wider world comes to discover us. That is a very poignant statement, even if she was half-kidding, and it makes me want to put the effort in to know her better. We're ready to discover you, Deborah Vogel. And lucky for us, we have an expert in Polish literature with us today to help us explore Vogel's life and work. We definitely need someone to hold our hand and walk us through this. <laughs> Boy, do we. So let's raid the stacks and get started. We're so pleased to welcome Juliet Breton, a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. Juliet's research focuses on English and Polish modernist writers and Polish-British cultural connections in the early 20th century. She also frequently writes about Polish news and culture for a variety of print and online outlets, including Notes from Poland, Culture.pl, The Sunday Times, The New Statesman's City Metric, The Independent, The Public Domain Review, and World Politics Review, to name just a few. Juliet, you had reached out to us and suggested that we read Acacia's Bloom for this episode. It was published in 1935, and when I went to find a copy, it was kind of hard to come by. So don't worry, guys. We later on in the show are going to let you know where you can find a version of this. But anyway, once I started to read a few lines, I was like, what the heck is this? To say I was scared would be an understatement. It looks nothing like the sort of novels we typically read on this show. Juliet, would you mind explaining in the simplest terms possible what Acacia's Bloom is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Vogel puts it best. She describes it as a montage novel, and it's a collection of different and quite abstract pieces of prose about her hometown, Lviv. But these pieces don't really have a central protagonist or focus or narrative thread. And instead, it's kind of free associating between impressions of the city. So the weather, sociopolitical events, she strips back contemporary reality into its most base geometric forms. It is split into three sections, but the first two are a bit like prose poems. And it's only the final section that has a kind of plot to it, the kind of structure. I love the way you describe that. That's perfect. It's very different and daring. 
That said, I still think it's impossible to really convey what Acacia's Bloom is without actually reading an excerpt. So Juliet, I wanted to see if you would like to do the honors there. I'm so excited for this. Me too. So I'm going to be reading from Flower Shops with Azaleas, which is from the very start of the novel. That day, the streets reflected the sky, and the sky was grey and warm. And when the sky is grey, the streets are matte and sweet, like a warm grey sea. And the people who found themselves on the street that day were dying for some kind of encounter, like once before. And finally, an awkward and inexplicable longing emerged to immerse themselves in an elaborate novel, even an old-fashioned one. Surely, the novel had to open with the following sentences. That day, and on a grey day with streets like grey seas, the calendar date comes here. A man in a grey coat and a black bowler hat strolled along L Street, reflecting on his life up to that point. And the novel had to start in that style, and everything in the romance novel had to begin with a similar effect, since there is a suddenly inexplicable demand for that now and the novel would recount the course that life could take, what could happen throughout the course of an ordinary life, and how fates are made of nothing, out of blue air, tacky boredom, and a single banal encounter. And yet, like a matter still not settled, though it has been experienced for many years, a long-forgotten sentence began to gnaw. How does one live? The question was just as banal as it was before, as ignorant of its own banality as it was the first time. And meanwhile, on the streets as grey as the sea, the new romance novel of ordinary life had begun, as yet unnoticed by the many passers-by. The streets in that novel smelled of elasticity, of glass and of walking. They smelled also of something unusual, the hardness and roundness of objects. And in the streets of that novel, Sticky space hardened into things of unusual kinds, spheres and flat planes, mostly grey and white, and the appearance of dense canvases of white space is treated like an event. Walls occur in this novel, thick like longing and sweltering heat. Walls, whiter than in reality, melancholy white or hard white. And there are surfaces, spherical, square and rectangular in everyday nomenclature, dresses, furniture, pavement and figures. People from this novel live with things like flatness and roundness, white, grey and colourful, and they wait for these categories as if for the one and only adventure. And so the first chapter of the novel begins more or less in this way. In grey skies, walls rise smooth like satin, walls rise similar to lacquer or paper, figures walk the streets, figures taken from the romance novel called Life. You read that so well. Yeah, it makes such a difference to have it read out loud. Definitely, definitely. You just get the feel with the pauses and the parentheticals and everything. You really do. And you can almost see it like a kind of stream of consciousness, I think, of how she writes. It's very visual. I mean, it is, you know, we're going to talk about this more too, but just that feel of painting, you can almost picture it like a painting as you're listening to it, you know, which yeah. her intention. So now that we've given you, our listeners, a small taste of Acacia's Bloom, we want to back up a little bit and tell you more about the author. Deborah Vogel was born in 1902 in a region known as Galicia in Southeast Poland, which today would be considered part of Ukraine. 
Her parents were intellectuals and well-educated. Her uncle, Marcus Ehrenpress, was a respected Hebrew author and a very important Jewish rabbi. Vogel's family fled to Vienna during World War I as part of a mass exodus of Jews escaping violent anti-Semitism in the region. The family eventually returned to Lviv, where Vogel went to high school and would end up primarily living for the rest of her life. And we're obviously hearing a lot about Lviv these days, sadly, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. And Juliet, we know Vogel studied philosophy and psychology in college and eventually earned her PhD in 1926. She went on to teach psychology at the Hebrew Teachers Seminary in Lviv. But it's safe to say teaching wasn't her true passion. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. I mean, he does have quite broad interests. He is interested in pedagogy and in teaching to a certain extent. Throughout Acacia's Bloom, she talks about very broad philosophical existential questions. He's asking quite a lot of her readers, as we've already gathered. But what she's really interested in is how art can unlock different things about the world. And she's quite interested in art as well as a kind of, almost as a tool for diplomacy. So she writes essays for both Polish and Jewish literary magazines. She's quite involved in translating Yiddish poetry and spreading Yiddish poetry in Poland, but also across the world. She's part of a wonderfully named um, cultural group in Lviv called Arts, very imaginative name, um, which involves Polish, Jewish and Ukrainian writers and painters working together. And this is quite unusual. In the 1930s, there were quite a lot of tensions between those groups. So it's very interesting that in Lviv you get this cultural centre, I suppose, for artistic development and uh, collaboration. And she also works as a mentor of sorts for other artists in that group. Um, But I mean, part of this, as I mentioned, is her involvement in Yiddish literature particularly. And this is a language that she only learns as an adult. She's encouraged to learn it by a friend of hers called Rachel Auerbach, who's a writer and historian. And Rachel goes on to write in her memoirs that Deborah Vogel wasn't that good at Yiddish, so she had to kind of go back and change the translations and edit her work. What she really wants to do is involve herself in broader worldwide cultural circles in Yiddish. So she talks about wanting to be involved with more established literatures, so literatures in Germany and France and Britain, to spread Yiddish to those countries as well. It just seems like taking on such a huge challenge if it wasn't even a language you grew up with. To be like, I'm going to start writing everything in this language that I learned as an adult. I'm still not that, you know, expert in yet. It says something about her personality that she would take that on. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And a language that is kind of denigrated at the time. So it's seen as being a language of the masses in Polish Jewish cultural circles. There's this effort to write in Polish rather than in Yiddish. So for her to just buck that trend and say, no, I want to write in Yiddish is astonishing, really. So she became friends with the writer Bruno Schultz, who, unlike Vogel, is a much more well-known figure of the Polish literati. But what's interesting is that Vogel actually had a pivotal part in helping him launch his writing career. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Schultz and Vogel met in 1930 through a mutual friend called Stanisław Ignacevich, who's a sort of eccentric in Poland at the time. He's a painter and an artist and a playwright. And they become friends. They have this very quick and quite intimate 
friendship slash relationship. They write a lot of letters to each other. Um, and Schultz starts writing his stories in these letters to Vogel. What Vogel sees is that Schultz is doing something that no one else is doing. His stories are completely original. He tries to get them published. Initially, it's quite slow to get interest in them because they're so unusual. But then he pulls strings with a few friends. He sets um, up Schultz with some meetings with some very high literary figures in Poland. And then finally, his works get noticed. I, I think it's quite interesting. Vogel now is, is being rediscovered. And I think that historically he's been seen as Schultz's muse and lover. And they did have this, you know, romantic relationship that they were going to get married, but her family opposed it. And then she ends up marrying someone else and he ends up having other relationships. So I think obviously we should see Vogel as someone else apart from Schultz's muse, but certainly her relationship with Schultz was important for both of their careers. But they're also quite, they end up being quite critical of each other. So they have this very interesting dynamic, the two of them. So in addition to making connections with writers and literary critics all over the world, including in New York, she had this not-so-secret longing to be able to travel and expand her horizons. She was particularly keen to visit New York City, which represented everything she felt was right about modernity. She unfortunately didn't really have the financial means to leave Lviv, which ultimately cost her not only her dreams, but ultimately her life. Yeah, this is one of the things that's so sad in her story. But that said, her ambitions and her personality are very apparent when you read all the letters that she wrote to various literary connections throughout Europe and even in America. This was a woman with chutzpah, if I can throw out a Yiddish term. She was always hustling quite brazenly at times to figure out ways to get published or reviewed. She can come across in these letters as impatient, blunt, and a little bit curt in her determination. I might even venture to say stalker <laughs> in a few yeah. instances. Um, Juliet, do you have any other insights on what her personality was like? Yeah, I mean, she's quite a motor, isn't she? She's uh, sort of all of her letters are full of, I've just finished this book and can you help me publish it? And can you give me any feedback? Would you sell this? It's almost nonstop for her. And that's what I love so much about her is that she's always pushing. She never gives up, even though she's aware that what she's doing is seen as different. And as we've said, she's not writing in a language that she's necessarily completely familiar with. She's still really, really pushing hard. Um, she's also digesting literature from across the world. She is in contact with artistic circles in Australia and in Africa. And like you mentioned, in New York, and she goes to Paris and gives poetry readings in Paris. She's got this constant yearning to sort of broaden her horizons. And she's also has this, like if she's in contact with editors and they change her work or they publish it in a different way to how she wanted it. She says, you know, I, I won't be publishing in this magazine again then if you're going to publish this wrong. She knew what she wanted and the kind of career that she wanted. I think Kim and I could both stand to have a little bit more of that personality in our professional careers. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> ask for what you want. Not not just ask, but demand what you yeah. want a little bit more. Yeah. Yep. Um, I get the sense that if she were still alive to hear this podcast, we would be hearing from her <laughs> after this episode. She'd have something to say. She'd want to tell us what we got wrong or correct the record. You know, she's just that sort of person. Um but as we mentioned earlier, Juliet, not 
everyone in the literary world really understood what Vogel was trying to do. I think it might help to understand her style if we take a look at one of her earlier poems. Would you be willing to walk us through one of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really like the poem City Grotesque Berlin, which is published in her collection Mannequins. I mean, it is quite expressionist, this depiction of Berlin. She uses, again, adjectives and colours and uh, sort of geometric shapes. But she also mentions specific parts of Berlin. So she says, purple is stuffy, like squandered life and like a lost fantastical thing. All evening and all night long, purple circulates on a grey wall. And orange advertisements on a second wall open with distant avenues, like well-known cities and houses you cannot leave, until a citrus-yellow landscape refreshes us with the glassy coolness of resignation, with the wisdom of rectangles and cubes in purple, orange-red, citrus-yellow letters, entangled fates are written, Eufa Film, Hotel Stadt, Lemberg, Eufa written in purple stuffy letters and nothing else is written in the colour of lost things. The chaste Susanna, the chaste Susanna, the flows by in orange light bulbs, goes by a hundred and a thousand times. Today a large audience can tremble before hidden, distant things, in front of breasts tender like transparent apple blossoms and bellies slender like costly pearl mussels of the chaste Susanna, the chaste Susanna, the very late and suddenly the noble colour of resignation is revealed in the full of pathos landscape in citrus yellow on a red wall of the sixth floor, vacuum cleaner at Fritz Wolf's for sale, the the best, the most durable vacuum cleaner, written in noble colour of resignation, in glassy colour, of days full of pathos, like grey rectangles, which suddenly and unexpectedly revealed the colour of ordinary lemons. Oh my gosh. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like random vacuum cleaners. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then hopefully the more we talk, it's all going to come into focus a little bit. Yeah. Speaking of that, I feel like we need a little more historical context in terms of what was happening in that period. Can you remind our listeners about some of the ideas that would have been swirling around in 1930s Europe? Yeah, I think it's important to start here with thinking about Lviv itself. It's the city of very exquisite architecture. It's known now as the Paris of Ukraine. It's a very beautiful city. It has these layers of history and it's layers you can still see in the city. On the fronts of buildings, the paint will peel off and you'll see German, Polish, Ukrainian, different languages and Yiddish as well. So it's this very multicultural city. But she's also writing at a time when there are experiments in Polish literature as well. So one of the writers who's very popular at the time is a writer called Sofia Naukowska, who writes quite a lot about female perspectives for the first time, offering a view from a, a female perspective of the world. Then um, Witkasi or Witkiewicz, the friend who linked Schultz and Vogel together, he's writing about different psychological perspectives and also there's a a sort of apocalyptic side to his works so he writes about you know the imagined dystopia of the future when Europe has fallen and this kind of thing and he also writes this brilliant book it's called Narcotics and this book is all about his experiments 
taking different drugs and writing about what happens when he takes various forms of drugs. So he's writing at a time when Polish literature is transforming. In the past, before Poland regained independence, it's quite a nationalistic literature. And then it becomes more, well, what we would recognise as modernist. So with these different experiments. And I think also Vogel is really influenced by what's happening in the visual arts, by artistic experiments in cubism, in this idea of sort of reducing the world to basic shapes and constructivism, which is a, a Polish and Russian artistic movement, which was quite interested in how the world might be ratioed and divided into different spaces and arranged in different ways. And this comes through quite a lot in Acacia's Bloom and this idea of montage. So placing different things in conjunction with each other in a way which might not overtly have a link between them, but which kind of has this more creative approach to what's going on in the world. That's so interesting. You know, some of the stuff you're saying, plus the poem that you read, plus thinking about art that does the same thing, um, talking about, you know, sort of the irony of advertising and um, Americanization, I think came up in some of the reviews, like how that's all playing a part too in, in what she's responding to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. He's very interested in mass culture as well. So he's quite interested in posters and advertisements, which don't have this kind of commentary or context to them or obvious interpretation. They're just sort of matter of fact plastered on a building. It's what you see and what you immediately digest. And I think this is coming at a time when, like you mentioned, the kind of Americanization of Europe, the mass produced goods, which are being spread across you know, even into Galicia, these perceived peripheries of Poland, you see the very small local businesses being replaced by larger conglomerates. So I think she's responding to that as well. I was just going to add in too that the literary influences that you mentioned and the dystopian apocalyptic thing. Also, when you were reading the poem, I got a flash of Blade Runner with the urban color and everything. It just made me think visually of Blade Runner for a second. I love that because I thought of Brazil, but then it's like taking it even farther into Blade Runner, which is later on. But yeah, I love Absolutely. that. And also that poem, kind of the ending, you get to this, you know, suddenly and unexpectedly reveals and you think, oh, finally, we're going to get some sense. And then it's the color of ordinary lemons. So it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's strikingly visual, but it's yeah. not like you have a traditional beginning, middle and end at all. It's a head scratcher. Yeah, it is. So in one of the three sections of Acacia's Bloom, she offers up a whole treatise on life and it tackles existential questions like how should one live? What are some of the other big ideas she's exploring? Or Juliet, are big ideas not even the point? I'm thinking of that line in the last section where she writes, who said there is any sense and a purpose in this? We don't know. So enlighten us. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that line. It's almost satirical, isn't it? She's kind of leading you along only to pull the rug from under your feet and say, actually, we're not talking about this at all. I don't think she wants us to take it very seriously. It's not a prose which wants to go anywhere deliberately. I think it's more stream of consciousness jumping from one thing to another. It's very much like, you know, we're looking at this thing over here and now we're looking at that and now we're going to look here, but we're not going to talk about why. Yeah, on one hand, she's just playing with different views of space in a way which doesn't seek to go anywhere. It might also be infused by that apocalyptic vein in Polish 
writing at the time, this sense of in a world that might seem to make sense, we can actually deconstruct it and it doesn't make sense. And these things that we attribute value to, like love and the urban life of the city and industry can be completely destroyed. So yeah, I mean, I think that in ways he's exploring these big ideas. He also seems quite interested in gender. I think he writes a lot about her perceived differences between men and women and how they might encompass different materialities and textures. Um, so these versions of Acacia's Bloom, the first one was written in Yiddish and then she writes a Polish version, which isn't a direct translation of the Yiddish version. So she's playing a bit with translation there and the idea of language as being quite fluid. But when she's writing from one version to another, so 1935-36, this is when she's pregnant with her son. So I think that she's almost responding to changes in her own body as well through prose and how her body is now doing something that it wasn't doing before and it's making a new life like her prose is making a new life, that kind of thing. I felt like reading it, I had to figure out how to just let go a little bit. Yeah. It's more of a sensory experience and you just have to let it wash over you. And then you start to pick up little things here and there by just allowing yourself to feel it more than think it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like a modernist painting, the painter isn't going to tell you everything that's happening, but if you look at it long enough, you're going to start to get these feelings about what they're trying to convey, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I had read somewhere that she kind of pushed back when people called her writing surrealist, which surprised me because all of her depictions of people as torsos and mannequins in the work, it's hard not to immediately think of Man Ray. So can you help us see her work through the artistic lens that she was trying to convey? Yeah, I mean, I I actually quite like that phrase through an artistic lens because it kind of feels like the way we should respond to Vogel, this idea of almost trying to get your eye in to what she's doing. I mean, I think, yes, surrealism is quite an important thread and quite an important background to her work. And she does push back against it, but she also recognises that it might be a base for what she's doing and what she's building on. Um, Certainly the surrealist idea of automatic writing, so just writing from your unconscious, seems important here. This sense of you're not doing anything deliberately, you're not trying to structure. The arts group that she's involved with, this Polish-Ukrainian-Jewish group in Lviv, is also quite interested in surrealism and cubism and, and futurism as well. I mean, she has this essay where she describes how she approaches the world and why she takes this more cubist, surrealist, artistic lens to the world. And and what she says is that reality is infinitely complex. It has all of these metaphors that we might use to describe it and additions and, and multiplicities. And sometimes it gets so complex that it turns into its opposite. So it actually becomes this mass, this kind of shape. And that's how she wants to write about the world. So it's the sense of reducing reality to its component parts or to more stable elements. Part of this, I think, is a a response to the urban city as well. So she says that the speed and the movement of the city might be transformed into a grey mass as you walk through it. You can't really pick apart individual elements. Another surrealist side to this is the image of the mannequin, like the doll, the, the torso, And this is also an image that comes up in Schultz. 
and in a lot of European writing in the 20th century. So the British novelist Jean Rhys writes about mannequins as human models in shops. And we also see this in new objectivity paintings in German art and in theatre. Um, there was a theatre practitioner called Edward Gordon Craig who had an idea of an uber marionette which could kind of perfect bodily performance and kind of strip it back. And this need for control in theatre as opposed to human individuality. So I think maybe it's part of kind of trying to control the world, even though it seems to be going all over the place. It's also trying to see the world through a more precise lens. When you first reached out to us about Vogel, you described her as the Polish Gertrude Stein. Can you talk a little bit about the similarities there? Yeah, I mean, this is something that a lot of critics have described her as. I mean, Gertrude Stein's works are also interested in the everyday and the commonplace and how you might depict the commonplace by dismantling conventional techniques of linearity and narrative and sense-making in literature. But I also think that Vogel is a little bit like James Joyce. So this sense of like trying to capture one day in the life of the city and the distractions that might come as you are walking through the city. And maybe also like Virginia Woolf in these impressionistic, quite subjective scenes. Although um, Vogel says that impressionism is consumerist in its desire to make use of every single moment in the world. So he maybe is like Woolf and, and maybe not. And there are also parallels, we, we might draw parallels with Russian literature in these big philosophical questions or in terms of post-structuralism. So Samuel Beckett, for example, might be a useful author to think about Vogel. I mean, yes, in ways this is helpful to try and understand her, but I also think she's doing her own thing and, and she's not trying to be like anyone else. Um, she's trying to be this individual, this kind of conduit for literary and artistic experimentation in Galicia and beyond. When you had mentioned earlier the other writer who was taking drugs and writing about that experience, that kind of made a lot of sense too, because this work feels hallucinogenic to me. I'm not saying she was taking any drugs while she was writing it, but I also thought of that term synesthesia yeah. while I was reading yeah. this work, um, the idea of an object having a corresponding sense. So she writes, grayness smells like walking, for example. And then there are other different building materials that represent feelings throughout the work. So she writes, concrete is gray, corrosive, and as if made from nothing. Velvety lime is full of patience. Brass, experienced and melancholy, is like a person who wishes that which is in life. And iron is hard, like tragic fates. The hidden formula of these souls can be discovered on all construction sites. Clay, clay is heavy and helpless, like happiness or misfortune. Clay yellow is the color of lost causes, just as citrus yellow is the color of cold resignation. It's very textured and the kind of materiality here. I mean, going back to the author who is on drugs, who I also love, <laughs> part of this book, Narcotics, is about how everyday language and everyday forms of narrative are inadequate to capture his experiences on different drugs. And maybe that's what's going on in a way here, because, I mean, this idea of clay is heavy and helpless, like happiness or misfortune, that doesn't really make sense. But maybe it does in a way of, she's not trying to see the world ordinarily, she's trying to do new things with it. 
this idea of construction sites as well. It reminds me of, you know, one of the central tenets of modernism, this idea of make it new and do new things and go further with prose than we might have ever gone before. One of the images that crops up a lot is that of fresh paint. So this idea of a city being reborn, even among the ruins of war and destruction. But then again, this is a paint that's quite sticky and kind of uh, cloying to the touch and you can't get rid of it and you can't shed it properly. In a way, it reminds me of trying to do new things, but it's also kind of coming back to being mired in normal structures of prose and normal structures of narrative. You're unable to move even though you want to. So maybe when she uses these phrases that don't really make sense, she's leaving them there as kind of testament of, you know, she's tried to go further and maybe we're not ready yet for this experiment. I love that. And what you were saying makes me think even like in a dream where you can't move, even though you want to, you're trying to move and you can't like that sticky feeling and she keeps pulling you back to sticky over and over. So interesting. It really is. It is. And also kind of syrupiness and sweetness. It's almost like it's too much stickiness. It's like just these ideas are just swirling around the stickiness, the emulsifying, the acacias. Oh, it's so cool. It is. It is. But it's also kind of like a maze. And when I read it, it feels like I've missed a bit and I have to go back. I feel like I've missed a bit where it would all make sense kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe it's like life too. You know, it's like you're wanting things to have, you know, more of a structure and a happy ending point, or you know what you're supposed to do next. You're supposed to look back at your life a certain way. And it's like, no, it isn't really like that. It's kind of a jumble of stuff. So you mentioned the word banality, and that comes up a lot banality and monotony. And as a modern reader, I'm thinking that's bad. Banality equals bad. But these words almost seem positive to her in this work. Can you enlighten us in any way on any of that? She is quite interested in kind of boring things, isn't she? Because she writes about like going to the hairdressers and that kind of thing. It's not about kind of big events, even though she's writing about philosophy. It almost doesn't tally with the actual things that she's talking about. Um, one of the ways she describes Acacia's Bloom is to say that the most meaningless things can remind us of the most important things in life. So it's almost like using the boring things as a tool or as a jumping off point to think more critically about the world. And she also says that boredom can be a kind of style. Um, so she talks about how various combinations of form have been exhausted and become sort of grey and amorphous, but that this is one step in the process of developing a new style. So I think she's writing about trying to do a new thing with art, but I think she's also very aware of the process that that might take and how we have to be completely subsumed in things that we might get frustrated with and bored with before we have this revelation moment. In a weird coincidence, you guys, when I was... Reading Acacia's Bloom, at the same time I was reading this novel that came out, uh, I think just last year or earlier this year, called Pure Color by Sheila Hetty. I don't know if either one of you know about it or have read it, but it's a also very philosophical, experimental novel that has to do with art criticism. I just want to read a little passage from Pure Color just because it reminded me so much of Vogel. And I was like, what are the odds that these two books are kind of coalescing in a weird way? So this is what Hetty writes. It's true that the world was failing at its one task of remaining a world. 
Pieces were breaking off. Seasons had become postmodern. We no longer knew where in the calendar we were by the weather. We once believed that 2,000 years ago was long in the past, but then we realized it was actually quite recent, just 30 generations before us. We were still at the stage of perfecting our tools, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Industrial Age, the Computer Age. But spiritually, there had only ever been one age. Heartbreak was no less heartbreaking. Lust was no less lustful. We remained as proud and hungry and fearful as we had ever been. We could medicate our feelings, at least for a little while, and psychotherapy had taught us to pretend that we were better than we were. Pretending can get you part of the way, but it never gets you far enough. So, so much there with like the construction elements and the, you know, the materials. It just felt reminiscent to me of what Vogel was doing a century before. I think if Vogel were alive today, she would have appreciated Hedy's last novel. I definitely want to read it now after hearing you read that part. And I completely can see where you're, you're getting the, um, it is reminiscent of Vogel. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And, and I think also the, the sense of calendar and the weather, and this is again, something that comes up in Vogel as well. The idea of standardized forms of time kind of dissolving and that you can't track the passing of the seasons. And, you know, Vogel references the months of the year a lot, but they almost don't matter. So she says, you know, in November, and then goes on to have these really abstract depictions. So it's just, yeah, it, it is eerily similar, isn't it, to, to Vogel's work? Yeah, I would be curious to find out if she had read Vogel's work. Just... Sheila, if you're out there, if you're listening <laughs> to Lost Ladies of Lit, please write us and let us know immediately. So let's circle back to Vogel's personal life. While she was dedicating herself to her intellectual pursuits, she also got married to an engineer in 1932. They had a son, Asher, and like any working mother, she struggled to balance her career and her role as a wife and mother. She wished for more literary success, of course, but she seemed happy domestically. Then in 1942, her life ended horrifically. Juliet, do you want to explain what happened? Yeah, so before the war, there's this really sad letter that Vogel writes to one of her friends. And she talks about her plans for new books in the fall and plans to continue working with writers in New York. And she says, well, yeah, I'd like to do all these things if something else doesn't happen in the fall. And of course it did because the Germans invaded. And then in 1941, the Germans push east. They take control of Lviv and she's incarcerated in the ghetto in Lviv. And ultimately she is shot there with her husband and her son and her mother in 1942. Um, and it's Henrik Streng, the illustrator of Acacia's Bloom, who finds their bodies. The same or the similar story happens to Bruno Schultz, who is also shot in the ghetto as well. So these literary talents are completely, you know, wiped out. Even um, Vidkasi Vitkevich, the, the guy who wrote the drugs book, he um, also dies in the war. He decides to kill himself. So, you know, all of these wonderful figures, that artistic talent is completely destroyed by war. And then speaking of, you know, more heartbreak, people in that region are experiencing it again today. I know that when we were corresponding about this episode, you mentioned how awful it was to go back and read some of Vogel's writings about Lviv, given what's happening in Ukraine today. Is there anything else you want to mention about that? Yeah, I mean, I see Vogel as being, you know, one 
of many layers of history in Lviv. She's just one slice of this archaeology which involves, you know, German language writers, Polish language, Yiddish. Today, when we're hearing about the displaced people moving into Lviv, you almost can't process what's happening in the news at the moment. In ways, it feels very similar to what was happening 80 years ago, the terror and the destruction. When we look at Vogel's work, we hope to have kind of moved on from what happened to her and from the horror of the Second World War. But, you know, in ways we've kind of looped back. When I read her work and I think about how she was hoping for all of these cultural connections and this very positive, optimistic collaboration between different cultures, and now, you know, the Russian idea of kind of subsuming cultures and, and denying different cultures their right to independence. It's the complete opposite of what she hoped for. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we weren't originally sure where we could find an English copy of Vogel's work, but then we discovered a book called Blooming Spaces, The Collected Poetry, Prose, Critical Writing, and Letters of Deborah Vogel. It was translated and edited by Anastasia Liubas and was published by Academic Studies Press. It was very helpful to have that copy to be able to kind of read the letters, read the other, you know, contemporary reviews of her work. Um, in fact, there was one reviewer, a contemporary of Vogel's named Joshua Rappaport, who took Vogel to task for sticking to her unique style. We're back to stickiness. Yes. Although he concedes that her writing is full of risk and a wild breakneck talent, he ends by saying, laboratory experiments are conducted to achieve fruitful results in life. If the experiments don't turn out to be feasible, then it is best to finish with them. So Juliet, we'll end the discussion on this question. Do you think Vogel's writing is a failed experiment? I honestly don't think it's necessarily about failure or success. I think she has different priorities and different ambitions. She's testing the limits of form and of different themes in a very kind of experimental way. I don't think she was seeking to have all the answers. I mean, we've found that, haven't we, in our discussion, this idea of she wants to do new things, but she's not sure where she's going yet. Um, and it's also a very kind of democratic and open space. It's not controlled. She's bringing in different things. She's expanding her frame of reference, deepening her frame of reference in different ways and changing the rules as she goes on with her prose. So no, I, I, I don't agree. It's not a failed experiment at all. It's a process, right? So if, yeah. if he was expecting her to create this whole new literary style, no, it's about inching things forward, breaking down little pieces of the wall here and there and moving, you know, the roots of the tree out through those cracks so that the next generation can kind of expand on that and push it forward. It's not like a one and done kind of, oh, that Absolutely. didn't work. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Juliet, thank you so much for introducing us to Deborah Vogel and for helping us make sense of her. It's made a huge difference in our understanding of her. And I thought this was a great discussion. Thank you. It's a really good reminder to kind of expose yourself to something new and unfamiliar. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I was terrified about this episode. I thought, where do I even begin? But now I'm really fascinated by her. So thank you so much for you know bringing her to our attention. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful to explore her work and think about the different things that she's interested in. Thank you. So that's all for today's episode. Be sure to take a moment to give us a quick five-star review over at Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying our episodes and tell a book-loving friend too. 
Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Amy Helms and Kim Askew. 